Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Dedicated to Edgar Degas, 1834 to 1917, in the centennial year of his death, Volume 3 of the Conservation Division's biennial journal, Factor, Conservation, Science, Art History, focuses on the tremendous wealth of works by Degas in the National Gallery of Art collection. The first to feature the work of a single artist, this issue includes essays by conservators, scientists, and curators. It presents insights into Degas' working methods in painting, sculpture in wax, and bronze, and works on paper, as well as a sonnet he wrote to his Little Dancer. The gallery has the third largest collection in the world of work by Degas, comprising 21 paintings, 65 sculptures, 34 drawings, 40 prints, two copper plates, and one volume of soft ground etchings. Its extensive Degas holdings and conservation resources have inspired not only groundbreaking gallery exhibitions, such as Degas, The Dancers, 1984, Degas at the Races, 1998, Degas' Little Dancer, 2014, and Degas' Cassatt, 2014, but also exhibitions around the world. For the public symposium held as a centenary tribute on September 22, 2017, Patricia Failing presented an overview of contemporary art historical approaches to studying Degas' sculpture. In the mid-1990s, several of the speakers here today appeared together in print in a special issue of Apollo magazine devoted to Degas' sculpture. My essay summarized some of the ways in which misconceptions and gaps in physical evidence affected debates about authorship in Degas' sculpture scholarship. The various articles and essays on Degas sculpture I've published, including the Apollo essay, have been characterized as writings centered on issues of intellectual property, uh, which is not exactly correct. In legal terms, intellectual property deals primarily with an author's pecuniary rights. My primary concern has been with the artist's moral rights, the right to have Edgar Degas' name associated with Edgar Degas' work and only with his work. In my case, this concern, spirals, <coughs> this concern spirals back time and time again to Degas' studio's practices as a sculptor, his habits, his technical strategies, and <coughs> the shifts in his decision-making process over time. Obviously, this is a very daunting topic. What have we learned and what can we learn about these practices 100 years after the artist's death? What kinds of evidence do we have? These questions are complicated by another one. What counts as evidence to settle certain debates and support compelling conclusions? So this afternoon, I'll review and update some of the observations about authorship that were presented in my Apollo essay. I'll address Degas' evolving art historical profile as a sculptor, but my observations will be situated within a relatively narrow framework bounded by examination of his studio practices. I'm not attempting to address the entire field of recent art historical developments in Degas' scholarship, in other words, but to focus instead on a certain range of issues and questions about evidence especially with regard to the chronological development of Edgar Degas' work in sculpture. 
My observations will rely heavily on the technical studies of Degas' original wax and clay sculpture, the sculpture Degas actually made himself, uh, carried out here at the National Gallery, and also consider some of the evidence provided by the photographs of Degas' sculpture taken shortly after his death in 1917 by a photographer known only as Gautier. And here we have on the screen one of his photographs of uh, the little dancer taken in 1917, uh, the dancer that's now in the National Gallery collection. The photographs were taken during the posthumous inventory of artworks in Degas' home. There are Gautier photographs of 46 sculptures that still exist today. Degas' dealers reported finding about 150 uh, sculptures in Degas' home after his death, and many of them were broken or, many, or in poor condition. And Pongio uh, <coughs> published the entire set of Gautier photographs and the dealer inventory of the sculptures for the first time in 1991. Only 80 examples are actually listed in the inventory, indicating that about half the sculptures that were left in his home were discarded even before the inventory was compiled. 74 of the remaining wax and clay sculptures were ultimately cast in bronze, and 70 of these original sculptures uh, still exist today. What these records tell us is that <coughs> the range and condition of Degas' work elected for preservation in bronze after his death was established almost entirely by chance. Several friends and colleagues reported that Degas was actively involved in modeling sculpture for decades. So it can be surmised that he created many, many more than the 150 examples that remained in his home. Making generalizations about Degas' sculptural oeuvre being cast, <coughs> uh, <coughs> sculptural oeuvre uh, based on the arbitrary sample that happened to end up being cast in bronze um, is a very risky business, although it happens all the time. And here's an example. Given the poor condition in which the sculptures were kept during Degas' last year, last years, Degas' dealer surmised that most of his surviving sculptures were created late in his career. A decade ago, this generalization seemed pretty compelling to me too. Recent studies of Degas' wax and clay sculptures here at the National Gallery, however, provide very convincing evidence that we were both wrong and that the sample of Degas' sculpture that happened to be preserved in bronze after his death actually includes several examples from both early and late in his career. My initial experience with Degas' sculpture came through meetings with collector Norman, Norton Simon uh, in the late 1970s. Mr. Simon had just purchased a unique set of Degas bronzes, the model casts, the master casts, from which the serialized bronzes in museums all over the world were made. And here's one of these um, master cast model bronzes with extremely fine detail. Subsequent studies of the model cast <coughs> clarified uh, many questions about the history of Degas bronzes. And you'll hear more about this history uh, later on this afternoon. The casting process began at the Ebrard foundry in Paris at the end of World War I. The first step was the creation of wax copies 
of Degas' original multimedia clay and wax figures that are now preserved here at the National Gallery. These wax copies were burned away in the lost wax casting process used to create an exceptionally well-crafted set of bronzes, the model casts that Norton Simon purchased. And since it's a fingerprint afternoon, uh, if you look at the detail on this model cast, you can see the artist's fingerprints. <clears throat> Another set of wax copies were made from the model bronzes. These so-called interwaxes were then sacrificed in turn to create the serialized bronzes for sale. So the Degas sculptures that most art historians had been studying and analyzing before the 1980s, in other words, were bronze replicas made from wax copies of the Model bronzes, which were themselves cast from another set of wax copies of Degas' original sculpture. Furthermore, these bronze sculptures, with, which Degas never, had never seen and didn't authorize, were cast in bronze, a material that the artist never used. From a moral rights perspective, the serialized bronzes are just an ethical nightmare. Given <coughs> their generational and material distance from Degas' original creations, how could art historians studying these bronzes determine what they should or could not tell us about Degas' working methods, materials, and technical innovations? Art historians were able to make certain kinds of valid conclusions based on the evidence of the serialized bronzes, but, that <coughs> evidence, but the evidence that the bronzes provided was limited or sometimes even worse. So um, two of Degas' own <coughs> original work, um, the tub and woman washing her foot here. Among Degas' sculptural practices that were obviously misrepresented in bronze translations, uh, for example, were his approaches to color and light in his sculpture, and also the materiality of his multimedia compositions. And again, you're looking on the screen at two works that Degas actually made. At the, same, at the time that Mr. Simon uh, purchased the Model Cass in 1976, Degas' original wax and clay sculptures were owned by the National Gallery's great benefactor, Paul Mellon. When Simon was able to compare some of his model casts with the waxes in Mr. Mellon's collection, he found numerous discrepancies between the model casts and the originals. Simon's, original, Simon's uh, initial suspicion was that Joseph Turnbach, Mr. Um, Mellon's conservator, had, in Mr. Simon's words, overcorrected the waxes. Simon came to believe that in some cases, the model casts represented Degas' work more accurately than the extant uh, original wax and clay figures, and he was right. Mr. Mellon's conservator, for the record, made only minor repairs and was not responsible for any significant discrepancies. After 1991, when the Gautier inventory photographs began to cir circulate, and this is another example of these photographs, it became evidence that art historians were faced not only with the limits on evidence the bronzes could provide about Degas' practices as a sculptor, 
They also learned that some of the existing wax, original wax and clay figures themselves were not necessarily faithful records of Degas' approaches to sculpture. The Gautier inventory photographs show us, for example, that Degas typically placed figures posed on one leg inside metal frames <coughs> or next to tall L-shaped brackets and attached wires that ran through the arms, legs, and head of the figure. Most of the frames and brackets shown or indicated in the early photographs do not exist anymore. In many cases, new armatures were, <coughs> were installed later in the sculpture's history, and these additions often involved cutting deep openings into the interior of the waxes to attach these new supports. Even after careful study and x-rays of, of the interiors of original sculptures, it's often difficult to tell which of the internal structures were created by Degas and which by later hands. Another one of the inventory photographs, dancer adjusting the string of her tights. There are other kinds of alterations to consider as well. For example, the inventory photograph of dancer adjusting the string of her tights reveals that Degas' wax figure was badly broken below the knees, lacked a left foot, and lacked part of the right foot. Um, <clears throat> on um, the uh, left is the uh, wax version of uh, the sculpture, and the bronze is on the right. Uh, in the waxes that exist today, and in the bronze casts, the legs and feet are basically intact, and there's a new left foot that's sort of weirdly twisted to the rear. It's impossible to know when these repairs and alterations were made and by whom, except that, in this case, they were made before the first bronzes, the model casts were, the <coughs> before the first bronzes, uh, the model bronzes were cast. Mr. Mellon donated 50 of Degas' extant wax and clay figures to the National Gallery in 2002. With that donation, the gallery became the major custodian of the best evidence we have of Edgar Degas' legacy as an authorial subject in sculpture. I would argue that in the past decade, the gallery and its conservators have squarely confronted the moral rights conundrum raised by the artist's heir's decision to cash in on their inheritance by authorizing serialized editions of Degas' sculpture in bronze. The National Gallery's efforts have been documented for art historians in a series of articles and essays and summarized in comprehensive and unprecedented publications. As a result of their efforts and those of their colleagues, art historians today now have entirely new categories of evidence to consult in analyzing Degas' sculptural production. One of the most vexing unknowns about Degas' studio practice in sculpture is the chronology of the examples of his work that happened to be preserved. There's reliable evidence that Degas was still making sculpture as late as 1911, but we don't know when he began. Working from the evidence of the bronzes, several art historians have laid out the groundwork for a chronological arc by trying to match up sculptures with similar poses in dated paintings. But even though Degas depicted several 
<coughs> similar poses in both two and three dimensions, um, there are no one-to-one -one matches between <coughs> images and painting and Degas' existing sculptures. In my view, this <coughs> what this misalignment tells us is that Degas understood form quite differently when he worked in three rather than in two dimensions. Also, the fact that, as you've heard now several times, that he habitually reworked and readjusted both his paintings and his sculpture over time muddies the efforts to match sculptures with dated canvases. As a second major strategy for ordering Degas' sculptures chronologically, again based primarily on the bronzes, has been stylistic analysis guided by a pervasive model of modernist progression. This model presupposes that the work of an early modernist like Degas would evolve progressively from realism to a more generalized uh, approach to form, and that surfaces of his sculpture would advance from smooth to painterly and toward greater and greater freedom of fracture. And so on the left, you have an early horse from the late 1860s or early 1870s, and on the right, um, <coughs> Horse with Jockey, which is supposed to be one of his last compositions, uh, dating close to the, eight, sometime in the 18, early 1890s. And here are um, radiographs of the armatures of the sculptures that you've just seen. Technical studies, such as these National Gallery radiographs of the internal structures of the waxes, are consistent in many cases with this model of modernist progression. Many of the more static and realistic figures assumed to be early, like the horse um, at the trough at the left, uh, were fabricated with tightly wrapped and twisted wires that correspond to the entire outline of the figure. And some of the more complex and animated poses assumed to be later, like the horse with jockey, the armatures are simple abstract sketches in wire that permitted the artist greater latitude in adjusting the pose as he went along. Based on the evidence of armatures and other technical studies, the National Gallery conservators have developed their own chronologies that in some cases modify the dates based primarily on style. They've also provided convincing evidence that Edward Mybridge's collection of stop-action photographs published in 1887 a publication Degas studied, inspired several of his horse sculptures. This alignment of sculpture and photography has provided <coughs> um, an evidence base that's unique and extraordinarily significant in documenting the arc of Degas' creative practice. So um, one of Moybridge's uh, photographs on the left and a corresponding sculpture by Degas on the right. Another example of the Moybridge photographs on the top and corresponding um, work by Degas on the lower register there. Uh, <clears throat> while a case for the relationship between uh, Mybridge's photographs and some of Degas' horse sculptures had been made on the evidence of the bronzes, the National Gallery's technical analysis of the original waxes has really cinched the argument. This is a radiograph of the rearing horse that you've just seen, or, <clears throat> or balking horse you've just seen. Um, the gallery's radiograph demonstrates not only a match 
between the poses of the horse and the photograph, but reveals that the horse was fabricated with a sliding metal rod that enabled Degas to adjust the height of the horse's chest to emulate Mybridge's photographs. The publication of Mybridge's um, <coughs> photographs in 1887, in summary, now seems to provide secure evidence that the horse sculptures whose poses can be related to the photographs were created at the end of the 1880s or a little later. This evidence in turn raises questions about the chronological models used to date other categories of Degas' work in sculpture. Back again to um, an early sculpture on the left and a later sculpture on the right. Nearly all the post-Moybridge horses, uh, like the example on the right, uh, are just as detailed and well-finished as the horses assigned the earliest dates, like the horse at trough on the left, indicating that Degas' sculptural practice did not re evolve reliably from realistic old-fashioned surfaces to more painterly abstract renderings. This observation suggests that analysis predicated on modernist stylistic assumptions should probably be downgraded a bit on the evidence scale in assessing the chronological development of all of Degas' sculptural figures. Whole series of radiographs um, from the National Gallery studies of <coughs> the internal uh, components of Degas' original figures. The National Gallery studies of Degas' sculpture in the last decade were the first to integrate the evidence provided by the Gautier inventory photographs with cutting edge, edge technical examination of the original waxes, master bronzes, and a whole number, whole range of the serialized casts. The, Degas, <coughs> the gallery's analysis of Degas' original sculptures could be described almost as forensic, revealing the skeletons and the DNA of the materials Degas used to construct his figures. Toggling back and forth <clears throat> between Degas' own work and the posthumous casts, the conservators have been able to tell us a great deal about the factual evidence the existing Degas sculptures can provide, boosting our understanding of the work he actually made and the work that he didn't make to an entirely new level. As today's presentations and the new value, volume of facture uh, attest, the debt art history owes to the National Gallery studies of Degas' work is not only exceptional, but it's enormous. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.